Well, growing in godliness, this is not an option for the Christian. You know, there are those who claim to know Christ, and yet they see no growth. And, and what is the problem? I say a large part of the problem is that they're satisfied uh, and probably very self-deceived with regard to their spiritual condition. Many people are not saved and think they are, and so while those who are saved look on with grace and compassion and patience, waiting for legitimate spirit-filled involvement in the body of Christ, uh, they remain hard-hearted, rigidly committed to conduct, which justifies their spiritual condition in their minds. You don't want to be that person. You also don't want to be faithless to that person. Right? You want to grow in godliness yourself so that you have the equipping and the passion, really the motivation to help others grow spiritually and, and really to be a catalyst for an awareness of a false conversion for those who are falsely converted, that they too would grow in their love for Jesus and for his body. As I mentioned earlier, coming here on Sunday morning is, is really one-third did you, did you ever think of it that way? It's really one-third of your involvement in the body of Christ. And so we provide family groups and we provide discipleship so that, that those other large percentages of your faithfulness to the body are implemented. There have been folks throughout the years who said, I just come for the teaching. And, and if that's all you're doing, you're not listening to the teaching. And after a while, you're going to grow weary of hearing the teaching that's calling you to be faithful to Jesus Christ, to grow in godliness rather than just check off an attendance box. And in time, uh, trust me, you'll either grow so weary of that you'll leave, or you will recognize that there is true joy in faithfulness and growing in godliness. Last week, we looked at the God-given or God-ordained motives behind disciplining yourself for godliness or training yourself for godliness. We looked at the motivations behind that. We said that most of you, most Christians probably know what to do, but the question is, are they motivated to do it? What's the why behind the what? The why and the how behind the what? Today, we'll look at the God-given methods for training yourself for godliness. We mentioned last time that in Romans 8, 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, this ought to really destroy your false conceptions of the idea of God's sovereignty. If you think that God's sovereignty means that he robotically forces you into whatever you do. Yes, he causes you to be born again. He preordained that. He predetermined that. He also predetermined your spiritual growth. Is that to say that you just then sit back and take the Keswick idea that says let go and let God? No, that doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. You won't grow if you let go. It's critical that you work hard at your sanctification, not in spite of the fact that God has ordained it, because he has ordained it. This is a work of God that requires maximum spirit-filled effort on your part. What is maximum spirit-filled effort? It is to worship in spirit and truth. Sometimes folks will apply that passage from John 4 only to singing and only to singing in the worship service. But your life, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, is worship. Everything you do is worship. Now apply that to everything you did this last week. Everything you did this last week was worship of something. 
And so if you're not looking at life through the grid of Colossians 1, which tells us that we are to consider him to be first in all things, chances are you have idols in your life. And Jesus is at worst a footnote and at best a co-pilot rather than a king and a master and a savior and a lord, the object of your affections. To worship in spirit is to live with wholehearted devotion. To worship in truth is to live according to the Word of God. The Word of God, the Spirit. That's Spirit-filled living. So to worship in spirit and truth is to live with wholehearted devotion to the Word of God. That is a maximum Spirit-filled effort. It's to strive by God's grace to be godly. Now, what does it mean to be godly? To be godly is to honor God. The godly man honors God with his life according to God's word. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He says, He was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation. The mystery of godliness is that A focal attention upon the person of Jesus Christ is what leads to godliness. Paul's point here is that God has given us his son that we would enjoy the mystery of godliness, that we would be godly. Now, how does a person become godly? He doesn't just say, you know what, I'm going to be a Christian. He doesn't just say, you know what, I'm going to do better. I'm going to have a life that honors the Lord. Those are certainly good things to think and to say and to commit oneself to, but that's not how it happens. It happens, as explained in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So much of modern pseudo-Christianity is focused on silly myths, and the primary catalyst for that is modern psychology. And what's the impetus? Really, I should say, what's the focus? The impetus behind modern psychology is money-making. But the focus is self-esteem. It's to totally do away with total depravity and to make people feel better about themselves. And so because so many folks have a false anthropology, which is promulgated, promoted, proclaimed by preachers, you know, they tell you you're not so bad they have a false anthropology, then they have a false... All they need is a weak gospel to overcome that false anthropology. But the true anthropology of the Bible requires a literal, efficacious, atoning death of a Savior who sinlessly died. Brad did a tremendous job earlier explaining that double imputation. It's so important that you understand that theology. Not only did Christ die for your sins... God imputed his righteousness to you while imputing your sinfulness to him. Now, imputation is not the same thing as impartation. It's not not Roman Catholic infusion of righteousness. It's a legal declaration so that when God sees you, he treats you as if you have always been utterly, uninterruptedly, completely righteous as if there's no stain on you. So he grants you eternal life because you bear that righteous reality. It's Christ's righteousness on loan for eternity. 
You didn't earn it. You didn't choose it. You didn't achieve it. And that should do away with all man-made theology because that's what you need. But that false anthropology of psychology simply says you just need to be better. You just need Jesus to polish you a bit. But you've got a good heart. So you understand why the modern church is so filled with so many false converts who think that because of their good deeds on the side with no devotion to Christ, no devotion to his body, somehow makes them acceptable in his eyes. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. I just gave you a massive category of silly myths. And silly is the right word for psychology. It's silly. And yet it's so believable. Why? Because it makes people feel so good. That's why. And you start telling them the truth about what the Bible says about them. They get angry and they tune you out. Unless the Spirit of God is actually doing a work. So hang in there. Keep telling people the truth. Paul goes on. Rather, train yourself for godliness. The New American Standard says, discipline yourself for godliness. I think the King James, said, King James says, exercise yourself for godliness. That's the more literal translation and maybe the better practical expression even today in our vernacular that you would be exercising yourself for godliness. He goes on to say, for while bodily training, right, bodily exercise, physical exercise is of some value, he doesn't dismiss bodily exercise as being unimportant. He says it's of little value or some value. Godliness, on the other hand, is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And this is why I've been flooding you with emails this last week with regard to doing that little plan that I put together called a plan for growing in godliness. Hopefully you in your family groups this week will sit down humbly and lovingly with those in your family group and say, you know, this is where I need help. I mean, not one of you in this room or in our church would say, you know, I don't need help spiritually. Unfortunately, the modern evangelical idea is that you don't need help. It's about you and Jesus. That's not Christianity. Let me say it again. Christianity is not defined by you and Jesus. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. What you find is a body, an interdependent body, equally interdependent as your organs are interdependent. Which of your organs could survive without your body? Not one. And yet... Well, Paul uses that illustration a number of times. So many today think that they not only can survive without the body of Christ, but erroneously think that they're even a Christian without the body of Christ. You're not. You're not. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior if you are not committed to the body of Jesus Christ. That's utterly foreign to the Bible. I know that might sound foreign and hard for some of you who think that, you know, I had a guy tell me a, a number of months ago, he said, I've known Jesus Christ for 20 years. He's been my Savior that whole time, but I've never been involved in a church. Friends, that's not a Christian. And I don't mind being the bad guy, so to speak, that needs to say that. The trouble is that person, pragmatically speaking, in other words, in ways that are manifested, he's not growing in Godliness. He can't. He couldn't. It's not possible. One who grows in godliness is the one who shows himself devoted to some sort of plan for growing in godliness that involves the body of Christ. Well, last week, I gave you the motives. We'll go through these again. We'll look at the methods then. And if you have your outline there, 
you'll want to get these down again. As I said last week, I gave you them in reverse chronological order. Why did I do that? I gave these to you in reverse chronological order so that you would be able to assess where you are spiritually. I did that with strategy in mind. I didn't want you to say, well, that motive doesn't describe my heart, so forget it. I wanted you to be able to say, that motive doesn't describe my heart, so what's the next motive? And so we worked our way down, so to speak, from the ultimate apex priority of everybody in the body of Christ, that we would glorify God. That was number five. And we started with number five, you remember. The glory of God. That's the primary apex motivation for everybody who's in the body of Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, that we might exist to the praise of his glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do all that you do to the glory of God. So again, I ask, with doing an inventory of this last week, this last month, this last year, can you confidently say that it was your endeavor to glorify God in every detail? What about just this morning? You know, is that the passion of your heart but man doesn't want to do this, not naturally. But if you were to say, you know, that's just not me. To be honest, I don't live for God's glory. Then you should hope to be motivated by the grace of God. Number four was the grace of God. Everyone experiences the grace of God. Not everyone endeavors to glorify God, but everyone experiences the grace of God, whether or not he's willing to acknowledge that that's what he's experiencing. Most people, most Unbelievers in particular think that they have earned everything they have. Again, an idea foreign to the Bible. The guy who thinks so much of himself, he looks back on his life and says, hey, look what I've done. I've, I've told you a number of times about the man my sister worked for years ago. She went to a Christmas party with other employees at his house. They pulled up into the front yard, and nobody was surprised that there was a statue, a 10-foot statue. I don't think he was 10 foot tall, by the way, but there was a 10-foot statue of the guy that said self-made man. That's just a guy who could afford to build the statue. Most people would do it if they could. And it wasn't long after that that the company that he owned and started disintegrated. All mankind, all people, saved or not, enjoy the grace of God. The common grace of God is expressed in that it reigns on the just and the unjust. All God's creation has experienced life and breath and sustenance and nature, and beautiful weather, and diverse food, and relationships. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Peter speaks of the grace of life, that is, marriage for believers and unbelievers, even when a believer is married to an unbeliever. The grace of marriage. It's God's grace, even for unbelievers, even for believers and unbelievers married together, despite the fact that God commands that believers not marry unbelievers, there's still grace in marriage. But man spurns God's grace. In the beginning of his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul says in verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul calls upon the grace of God to be extended to those he loves. 
He wants man to experience God's grace. But in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's a rejection of God's common grace, this idea that, no, I, everything I've got, I earned. That's a rejection of God's grace. Then in verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Remember that term, they did not give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then down in verse 28, Paul says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, right? He already has said that they did not thank God. They weren't thankful to God. Now he's pointing out they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So you wonder, you know, many times you might say, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe that happened to that child, that anyone would do that to that child, that anyone would do that with someone else, even if it's consensual. I would never do something like that. You are rejecting the reality that by God's grace, he has restrained you. But the people who engage in those things are doing so because they have rejected God's grace. They were not thankful for the common grace that God Provided, But in Romans 3, 23, here's the hopeful end of this. Here's the beauty. Here's the joy. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's that distilled theological anthropology of the Bible that so many people, even in the church today, reject. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Back to Romans 1:18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God will ultimately be poured out upon those who do not bear the righteousness of Christ. And so here he's showing the grace of God in that while all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Believing in the efficacious work of Jesus' death on the cross. It's by grace. And the person who claims some credit for that transaction is not communicating the grace of God. It doesn't mean that he's not saved. Perhaps he is saved by grace through faith, but yet somehow in his pride, he looks back on it and takes credit. That person's not going to grow in godliness. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So you can see how the person who has not arrived at the place of longing for the glory of God needs to acknowledge the grace of God. It's by this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Why would I want to glorify God? Only 
if I'm willing to acknowledge the grace of God. And to whatever degree a person is willing to dismiss the grace of Christ by taking any credit for what Christ has accomplished, and even to call what Christ has done deficient, he's going to lose interest in glorifying God. Doesn't that make sense? Obviously, he's going to want to glorify himself if he thinks that any measure of his spiritual benefits come from his efforts. It's only God's grace. And when one realizes it's God's grace, then he has entered the gateway into wanting to glorify God. But if God's grace is not motivating to you, if you still believe that you need to perform to achieve God's favor, if someone were to ask you the question, how must I be saved or how may I have eternal life, and your answer is anything other than the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ, if your answer to that question involves some effort on man's part, then you need, number three, the gospel of God. It's very possible that if you have no interest in glorifying God and you really don't have an understanding of or an interest in resting in the grace of God, that you've bypassed the gospel of God into some form of religion. You need the gospel of God. You probably haven't been saved by the gospel of God. You've very likely experienced a false conversion rooted in something you've done in the flesh. If you have no interest in or appreciation for the grace of God. Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, that's the, the manifestation of the gospel application to one's life. If the person has in fact submitted himself to the gospel, if he has been saved by the gospel, then the fact is he has died to sin. How then can he still live in it? See, this destroys the idea that you can live a double life, that you've you know, got this religious thing going on on Sundays or whenever, but then you have a whole different life that you're hiding from your wife and your kids and whoever else. You've died to sin if you have the gospel. If you've died in Christ, you've died to sin, Paul asks the rhetorical question, how can we who died to sin live in it? The point is you can't. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. This is not water baptism. This is Holy Spirit baptism. He's not talking about the act of symbolically obeying Jesus Christ by way of water baptism. He's talking about the identification that takes place in the moment that God saves someone. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, identification into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so many of you, when you've stood in our baptism waters, or even when you've filled out your, the membership application, you've explained how your life is different. You can confidently, honestly, and, and gratefully say, God has changed my heart. I have an interest in the gospel because I'm saved by the gospel, rather than some prideful recollection of some decision you made. You need the gospel. In particular, if you have no interest in glorifying God and really no understanding of the grace of God, you need the gospel. But if you still say, you know, Todd, I'm still not with you on this. 
I'm really not following you. My salvation is something I chose. I closed the deal. I bridged the gap between me and God. I moved to him. Todd, I'm not sure why you place so much emphasis on the gospel. Why in the world would that motivate me? If that's you, and be honest. I'm not telling you to raise your hand or come forward. I'm saying be honest with God right now. If that's you, no real interest in the glory of God, no real understanding or or rest in the grace of God, really no understanding of or holding fast to the gospel of God, then number two, you need the guidance of God. And as I told you last week, most people would say, well, yeah, I know that. When in the world is God just going to write it on the wall or in the clouds or through a friend or in a movie or in a dream? No, 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 you have a Bible, right? That's the guidance of God. It's the perfect guidance of God. God. See, if you're looking somewhere other than the Word of God, you may have embraced a false gospel and not the gospel of God. And that's why you're not growing in godliness, and that's why you're frustrated. You need the guidance of God. Galatians 1 verse 6 says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. See, this is the exact contradistinction to the gospel of Rome. In the Council of Trent, it was declared by the Roman Catholic organization, that anyone who says that salvation is by grace through faith alone, he is accursed. Interesting, huh? Paul says the exact opposite here. Every one of us should know the difference and care enough to be able to explain that not only is a false gospel not saving, it's damning. Look at how Paul has said this here. Those devoted to a false gospel are accursed. So it's critical that you look more closely at God's exclusive method of communication to us, His Word. That's God's guidance. And if you cling closely to God's Word and what God has said in His Word, you will not only recognize a false gospel, you will be graciously impassioned for exposing the fact that it has damned those who rest in it. That's what happens when you're saved by the gospel. You you found this by looking at the guidance of God, his exclusive guidance in his word. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 say, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You see, this is why it's critical that you find the word of God to be the exclusive expression of the guidance of God and not a movie. Not a dream, not something else. God has said those who add to the word of God will be proven to be a liar. Well, if you're not motivated by God's glory and you're not amazed by God's grace and you're not moved by God's gospel and you're not satisfied with God's guidance, you need, number one, the gathering of God. Oh, I got... Christians at the workplace, we have Bible study together, and you know, Christmas party, it's all about Jesus. Get that idea out of your head, that's a 
It's a diversion. It's a diversion if that's all that you have. You need the body of Christ. After saying, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In Ephesians 5, Paul continues to say, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Beloved, I can't count the number of men I've known in my life who think that somehow they have reverence for Christ by requiring their wives to submit to them. And they speak of that as if somehow that honors the Lord. And that they want nothing to do with submitting to the body of Christ, which is what Paul says here is an expression of your reverence for Christ. I, I know a lot of children. I know six pretty well. And if uh, you know, someone were to come in off the street during dinner time and sit at the table with us and start calling me dad and then leave and want nothing to do with us for the next three or four weeks, my kids would be confused. You get it? You get the point? How many are there who claim to know Jesus Christ and they want nothing to do with his family? And whatever they have to do with this family is only a condescending judgment of, well, they don't do this right, they don't do that right. Really? What are you doing right? Well, I'm doing right by not being around those people that don't do right. Oh, wow, that's great. That's really helpful. You need the gathering of God. That's where it starts. That's where it starts with everybody. Romans 1.17 says that justification comes faith to faith. Doesn't mean you provide justification, don't think that. But for those who are justified, for those who know Christ, it comes through relationships. It's not to say that somebody can't get saved by reading the Bible. I know a guy who did that. But why did he read the Bible? Because somebody gave it to him. Somebody loved him enough to say, you know, your atheism is kind of wonky, you know, just so you know. And I know you know that, but just read the Bible. And so he did. He was trying to really dismiss the significance of the Bible and reading it. The Spirit of God saved him as he came familiar with truth. But that's because somebody loved him enough to minister to him. You know, the person who claims you know Jesus Christ, but he's not growing in godliness, he needs to be around people who are growing in godliness, and they need to be the body of Christ. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Think of it. Uh, the writer of Hebrews here is speaking of the interdependent relationship between holding fast to the hope that we have in the gospel along with, listen to it, keep listening, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. What's the implication about that some? Well, they are not holding fast the confession of hope. They're wavering. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, capital D, drawing near. What day? The return of Christ. 
We long for Christ to return. What do we do in the meantime? We strengthen each other for longing for Christ's return, but also for bringing up other people to Christ. This needs to be done in the context of a local church where there are faithful shepherds. 1 Peter 5.2 says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight and not compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Command. Be subject to the elders. That's the biblical design. It's the New Testament design. It's a matter of care. If you keep reading in 1 Peter 5, you see almost immediately after this passage, Peter says, cast what? Your what? Your anxieties. Where? On the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. How is his care shown for you? In a living, breathing shepherd who, if he has any worth at all, would die for you. I meet once a month with 12 men on a Thursday night who would die for you. You should come to the meeting sometime. You should sit around the table with us as we laugh sometimes so hard we can hardly breathe, as we enjoy one another, as we defer one to another, as we think about you, we pray for every single one of you. If you have visited our church in the last 12 weeks, we pray for you. That's one visit. Think of what's going on in our hearts when we pray for those of you who've been with us for six months, six years. We pray for you. Your shepherd prays for your soul because he loves you. Verse 5, 1 Peter 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You can't argue with God on this. I don't care if you argue with me. In fact, I would enjoy that. Let's go to have coffee and talk about this. Let me choose the coffee. <laughs> Clothe yourselves, all of you, the elders and the not elders, all the members of the body. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. How do you do that? You serve one another. You minister to one another. You, you speak to each other. You say hello when people walk in the room. You know, you smile because you love people, right? You do those things that shows your appreciation and your love for the body. But what? But God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Consider their spiritual growth. Consider their growth in godliness. You know, if you can confidently say you've known me for a year or two and you've seen no spiritual growth in me, leave this church. You think I failed? I need to hear that. Before you leave, come tell me. <laughs> now I mean that. Come tell me. Address it. Paul gives a recipe for that in 1 Timothy 5. It's so clear. Elders need to be confronted. There's a plan for that. It's a structure. God's given it to us because elders sin. Hebrews 13, 17, listen to this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. What sheep, 
What sheep, when sick and ailing, unable to move, unable to eat, sees his shepherd coming and says, why are you trying to control my life? So controlling. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. If you haven't been in this role, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like. But if you're a mom or a dad or a person, you have some idea of what it's like to care so much for someone that you want them to do well. You don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to experience destruction. What does it do to you when that person that you love and is running from you says, you know what, we're going to exclude you from the process. I will give an account for your soul. If you have associated yourself with the Anchor Bible Church, and I can't say this about anybody else because that's the rest of the world, okay? The line is drawn with church membership. Those who have said, committed to the Anchor Bible Church and everything that means covenantally, then I have that devotion to you. It's not to say that I'm not devoted to you if you're not a member yet. I probably am devoted to you, even if you're not a member yet. You've seen that, I'm sure, many of you. But at the same time, there has to be a willingness to engage in this association that is, in fact, biblically driven. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say about those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. That submission, by the way, is the preaching of the Word of God. It's not me coming over and telling you what color to paint your house. Trust me, I'm not going to do that. But it's a willingness to hear that shepherd call you to faithfulness to God and His Word. To the pastor, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Complete, equipped for every good work work because he's going to all the conferences and doing all the studies on church growth and he's talking to the rest of the staff about how to get more people in here. We'll get Krispy Kreme donuts and whatever it takes. No. No. He's equipped for every good work. He's made complete. The man of God is made complete because all scripture is breathed out by God. It's, that's, it's that word inspired. It's inspired by God, it's breathed out by God, it's spoken out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You need a shepherd. You need a shepherd. Ephesians 4.11, shepherds and teachers are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You know? The uh, Benny Hens, the Beth Moores, 
the people with deceitful schemes that sound good on the surface. So it's good that you're here. It's good that you're here. You've subjected yourself to the gathering for God. For whatever reason, you're here, you're gathering with the body of Christ, and I commend you for that. And I trust that you will find such deep and great value in it that you'll continue. But it's not good enough for you to just be here on Sunday mornings. James 2.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. You need a smaller group of people with whom you are accountable to apply the teaching. You need that group. You need a family group. That's what we call them. Call it whatever you want. I don't care. But you need a small group of people with whom you are devoted to Bible study, prayer, singing, fellowship, all under the care of a biblically qualified, spirit-filled shepherd who cares for your soul and will give an account for your soul. It's God's design. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You need discipleship. I had the privilege again this last week of having breakfast with my dear friend Clayton Herb. Comes a couple or three or four times a year, not often enough. Clayton's single. He's going to be 83 next month. If you were to watch him, if any of you watch the Christmas concert, he's the guy that looks like he's in his mid-40s up there directing the music. Has something to do with the fact that he's still single, that he you know, looks that young. But, but Clayton um, is a dear soul who loves... God loves the body of Christ. In the uh, late 90s, Clayton asked me if I wanted to rent a room from him in his condo. It's not a big condo. It's about 1,200 square feet. Clayton doesn't need a roommate. What did Clayton benefit from having a roommate? Well, there's fellowship. There's the, the godly interaction that takes place that leads to spiritual growth. But he doesn't need a roommate. It's 20 years later. Clayton's got three roommates, two-bedroom condo. Why? Because seminary students are poor. Three roommates. Clayton doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the messy apartment. He doesn't need all the things that go with having a roommate. But he's got three. Why? Because he's got time left to live and minister to the body of Christ. And he said to me when we had breakfast the other day, too many Christians say, be warm and be filled. Have a great day. You need the body of Christ. By the way, if you're a member of the body of Christ, the body of Christ needs you just as much as you need the body. Read 1 Corinthians 12 and tell me if I'm not right about that. One body, many members. Every member needs the body. The body needs every member. That might be why you're not growing in godliness. Those are the God-ordained, God-given motives for your growth in godliness, beginning with the gathering of God. That's number one. It starts with the gathering for God. 
If you're half-heartedly dipping your toe into that water, you're not going to grow. Just forget it. You're only going to be frustrated by people telling you you need to be more involved in the body because you're going to feel self-righteous by saying, you know, well, I am involved. People are saying, yeah, but you're not growing. You need to be involved. I mean, really intimately involved. So that was the first motive, the gathering of God, being around godly people, gaining an interest in the guidance of God, his word, understanding and being saved by the gospel of God, resting in the grace of God and being impassioned by the glory of God. It works in that sequence. Last week I referred to it as a spiritual freight train. Get on. Get on wherever you say, I understand that window. That box car is open. I'm getting on there. Maybe for many of you, it's the gathering. You haven't really been involved in the gathering. You are forsaking the fellowship of the believers. So it's not going well for you. Maybe, uh, maybe you're not reading your Bible. You have no real daily devotion. Maybe you're not resting in the gospel. Resting in a decision you made, but not Christ's work. Maybe you've abandoned God's grace and you think this is all about your works, what you do, and you feel kind of, you know, privileged and yet don't understand why you're not getting more affirmation. That might be, that might be the problem. You're not resting in the grace of God. So the glory of God is totally foreign. But wherever you see that spiritual boxcar, get on. There's not a person in this room who is not going to be motivated by one of these five motives, if you will. Embrace the one that makes the most sense to you today. How do you do this? How do you apply these motives? What does it look like? What is the what and how? In simple form, you must work to rest. If you've ever given a hard day's work, you know what it's like to enjoy that rest. By the time my head hit the pillow, pillow last night, pillow, Jack's called it a pillow, so now I'm calling it a pillow. It's my pillow pet. Anybody know what a pillow pet is? It doesn't matter. We'll move on. By the time I laid down, I mean, the bed felt so good. Oh, it's one of, one of those days where I thought, man, this is great just to lay down. And you realize how tired you were. You don't realize it. If you've ever experienced that, that's what we're talking about. You work hard by the grace of God doing the things he's commanded you to do, and then you rest in him. In fact, you're resting while you're working because you're focusing on what he has done. You're committed to enjoying and embracing what he has done. Let me say it this way. You were not only created to glorify God, you were created to enjoy glorifying God. This is a joyous experience. It's a joyous occasion to obey God with the right heart attitude. But when you start developing your spiritual resume by keeping track of things that you've done and keeping track of having not been applauded for doing them, you're not resting in the Lord. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? You're resting in you. And you start to get critical 
of others who aren't resting in you. You were created to glorify God, but you were created to enjoy glorifying God. Now you're wondering how in the world in 10 minutes I'm going to get to today's message. That's all review. I can do it, believe me. I can do it because everything I'm going to tell you, you already know. I might add a little something, I'll leave a bit of suspense for you, to the end that you might not know. The acronym that many of you know I I love and have probably taught you in some context in the past is REST. Coming from Matthew 11. Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He's not saying, come to me because you've had a hard day at work. He's saying, in essence, come to me because you are a legalist. And you have been working, not by God's grace, but you've been doing what you've been doing to gain favor for doing it. That's the context of Matthew 11. And then he says, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Weary and heavy laden from what? Your Phariseeism. Your legalism. Your belief that, you know, I tried God. I tried the church. And I didn't like how it turned out. That's Phariseeism. And you're weary because of that. You're exhausted. Or you were exhausted. And you think you're liberated, but you're not. He says, come unto me for rest. And how do you do that? First under the God-given methods, repentance. You engage in a changing of your mind. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. David says in Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So repent. Repent. Number two, exaltation. Engage in exaltation. Exalt God. How do you do that? I have five ways from Scripture you can do that. I'll just give them to you, and then I'll give a little bit of commentary on on each of them. Sing God's Word. You have a privilege to do that every Sunday, but you also have our weekly devotional guide that you can go to. The design is that it's updated Sunday afternoon, and you can start Sunday night engaging in your devotions by singing one of the songs that we're going to be singing together the next Sunday. Do you know that? You go to our website, you click on that button, it plays the song for you, it shows you the lyrics. So exalt God by singing to him. Letter B, read God's Word. So not, not just sing God's Word, but letter B, read God's Word. Do you have a plan? If you have a plan, great. If you don't have a plan, then you won't do it. I sent you an email. I'll, I'll probably send it again this week to the Legionnaire website that's got an amazing list of Bible study plans. I'm doing a different plan this year. I'm going to read in various different places in the scripture, five days a week and leave the other two days for other things I want to catch up on. If you want to do that plan, do that plan. But there are a lot of plans there. You need a plan. You need to have a Bible reading plan. That's why I had John come up and talk. I don't know how many hundreds of Robert Murray McShane Bible study plans John has passed out, but if you haven't received one from him, you probably haven't been around very long. 
because John has experienced the benefits of daily Bible reading, and I've seen those benefits in him. I've seen God cause him to grow in godliness. I, I see it in many of you, and it has to do with your Bible intake. You know, don't be the person who runs on fumes and does a lot of stuff, but isn't intaking God's word. Read God's word. Let her see. Pray God's word. Go to Psalm 4. Try this today, later today. Just go open up Psalm 4 and just read it, but, but, but read it to God. Pray to God the truths held there in Psalm 4. You'll find that to be a great joy. Letter D, meditate on God's word. You know, that's to walk away and think about it. That's why we ask you to memorize, which, by the way, is letter E. That's why we ask you to memorize God's word so that when you're in the grocery line or you're stuck in the gas line at Costco or wherever, you can recall God's word without having to pull up your phone. Great that you can pull up your phone, but you don't have to if you have it memorized. Meditate on God's word. Believe his truth and be changed by it. This is how, this is the what of growing in godliness. Repentance and exaltation. And the third thing is supplication. Supplication. Pleading with God. Appealing to God. Believing Philippians 4. Believing Psalm 37 verse 4 that tells us he will give us the desires of our hearts if we cry out to him. Do you do that? Is that what your prayer life is like? Is it systematized? Are you keeping track? You notice that I send out prayer requests. Do you also notice that I send out prayer responses? I show you what's going on with those. You ever had somebody do that? Lots and lots of prayer requests. And you never know what happened. I want you to know what happened. I want you to know when you know, someone's had surgery and it went well. Are you keeping track? Someone asks you to pray for them. Do you pray for them right then? Do that by all means if you can. But go home, pray on a regular basis. I sent you a prayer plan by email so that you could kind of divide your days up and be devoted to regular prayer. This supplication is pleading with God. It's you waiting on God. You might do a concordant search of the word wait or watch and just see how many times the psalmist watches for God to do something. As I was driving in this morning, some of you have noticed they're doing a lot of uh, land survey work in the roads. I assume they're going to redo the roads and paint lines and all that. I did some land survey work when I was in college. And one of the things that I discovered about land survey work is that there's a lot of waiting going on and not much result in the moment. My best friend and I did some work for his dad, some land survey work. I can remember standing there in the freezing cold in December, pouring down icy rain, and I'm holding this pole going, I think I'm going to die, I think I'm going to die, I think I'm going to die. And it seemed like it went on and on and on forever. But the guys that do the land survey work, the guys and gals that do that kind of work, eventually see the product. You see these beautiful homes that are built, or you see construction taking place, and there's a result. That's a lot of what prayer is like. You're pleading with the Lord. You're crying out to him, knowing that that's your way of communicating to him while he has already established his way of communicating to you. Don't expect him to speak to you in prayer. He's already spoken to you in his word. Speak to him in prayer and expect God to do the things that are going to honor him and provide godliness for you. Well, number four, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. I've already read to you from Romans 1 the results of being an unthankful person. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we tend to take all the gifts and pleasures and happiness and the joy without saying much to God. We take our health and strength, our food and clothing and our loved ones all for granted. 
But the moment anything goes wrong, we start grumbling and complaining, and we say, why should God do this to me? Why should this happen to me? How slow we are to thank and swift to grumble. There's so many things for which you and I could be thankful. So many ways we could express our gratitude, but it's got to start with a willingness to set our sights on Jesus Christ. Tony McCracken, my dear friend of 20 plus years, a missionary to Malawi, was here several months ago, and he said these words, there's no Christianity without Jesus Christ. There's no Christianity without Jesus Christ. Are you striving to do his work without him? Are you doing what you're doing, thinking, you know, I'm kind of good at this stuff. I'm, I'm good at these things. Why don't they ask me to do more of these things, you know? And I should get rewarded for doing them. Well, as you know, in Colossians 3, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are doing what you do if you're doing it with the right heart attitude for his glory. Now, this is the context of the workplace, but how much more should that apply in the church? but it should apply in the workplace. Turn with me as we finish to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her really takes us back to 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, doesn't it? Where will the benefits be for disciplining yourself for godliness in this life and in the next? Discipline yourself for godliness, for you'll experience the benefits in this life and in the next. Mary knew that. Mary knew that. And the Lord was her portion. So every command of the Lord to subject ourselves one to another is seen as an opportunity to show reverence for the Lord, that he would be our portion. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the new year, and I thank you for the privilege for us as a local body to enjoy you. That we, having examined these four methods of growing in godliness would result in enjoying the rest that comes from spirit-filled hard work. I pray for each person here that he or she would remember that giant steps are for giants. The steps you've called us to are steps to be taken by sheep, small sheep, steps, that we would rest in the chief shepherd, that it would be his delight that we might worship and revere him 
as we do it together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.